Chapter twenty nine, part two of the House of the Whispering Pines by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Carolyn. Chapter twenty nine, part two. I remembered the room. Mr. Moffat was equal to the appeal. Did anything happen? Did Mr. Renelay speak to you or you to him, or did your sister Adelaide speak? No one spoke, but Mr. Renelay put a little slip of paper into my hands, a, a note, and as he did this, my brother looked around. I don't know whether he saw the note or not, but his eye caught mine, and I may have blushed. Next moment he was looking past me, and presently he had flung himself out of the room, and I heard him going upstairs. Adelaide had joined me by this time, and Mr. Renelay turned to speak to her, and, and I went over to the bookshelves to read my note. And did you read it then? No, I was afraid. I waited till Mr. Renelay was gone, and then I went up to my room and read it. It was not a, a note to be glad of. I mean proud of. I'm afraid I was a little glad of it at first. I was a wicked girl. Mr. Moffat glanced at Mr. Fox, but that gentleman, passing over this artless expression of feeling as unworthy of an objection, he went steadily on. Miss Cumberland, before you tell us about this note, will you be good enough to inform us whether any words passed between you and your sister before you went upstairs? Oh, yes, we talked. We all three talked but it was about indifferent matters. The servants were going to a ball, and we spoke of that. Mr. Renelay did not stay long. Very soon he remarked that he had a busy evening before him, and took his leave. I was not in the room with them when he did this. I was in the adjoining room, but I heard his remark and saw him go. I did not wait to talk to Adelaide. Now, about the note— I read it as soon as I reached my room. Then I sat still for a long time. Miss Cumberland, pardon my request, but will you tell us what was in that note? She lifted her patient eyes and looked straight at her brother. He did not meet her gaze, but the dull flush which lit up the dead white of his cheek showed how he suffered under this ordeal. At me she never glanced. This was the only mercy shown me that dreadful morning. I grew to be thankful for it as she went on. I do not remember the words, she said finally, as her eyes fell again to her lap. But I remember its meaning. It was an invitation for me to leave town with him that very evening, and be married at some place he mentioned. He said it would be the best way to— to end matters. This brought Mr. Fox to his feet. For all his self-command, he had been perceptibly growing more and more nervous as the examination proceeded, and he found himself still in the dark as to his opponent's purpose and the character of the revelations he had to fear. Turning to the judge, he cried, "'This testimony is irrelevant and incompetent, and I ask to have it stricken out.' Mr. Moffat's voice, as he arose to answer this, was like honey poured upon gal. 
it is neither irrelevant nor incompetent and if it were the objection comes too late my friend should have objected to the question the whole course of counsel has been very unusual began mr fox yes but so is the case i beg your honour to believe that in some of its features this case is not only unusual but almost without a precedent that it may be lightly understood and justice shown my client a full knowledge of the whole family's experiences during those fatal hours is not only desirable but absolutely essential i beg therefore that my witness may be allowed to proceed and tell her story in all its details nothing will be introduced which will not ultimately be seen to have a direct bearing upon the attitude of my client towards the crime for which he stands here arraigned the motion is denied declared the judge mr fox sat down to the universal relief of all but the two persons most interested arthur and myself mr moffat generous enough or discreet enough to take no note of his opponent's discomfiture lifted a paper from the table and held it towards the witness do you recognize these lines he asked placing the remnants of my half-burned communication in her hands she started at sight of them evidently she had never expected to see them again yes she answered after a moment this is a portion of the note i have mentioned you recognize it as such i do her eyes lingered on the scrap and followed it as it was passed back and marked as an exhibit mr moffat recalled her to the matter in hand what did you do next miss cumberland i answered the note may i ask to what effect i refused mr ranelagh's request i said that i could not do what he asked and told him to wait till the next day and he would see how i felt towards him and towards adelaide that was all i could not write much i was suffering greatly suffering in mind or suffering in body suffering in mind i was terrified but that feeling did not last very long soon i grew happy happier than i had been in weeks happier than i had ever been in all my life before i found that i loved adelaide better than i did myself this made everything easy even the sending of the answer i have told you about to mr ranelagh miss cumberland how did you get this answer to mr ranelagh by means of a gentleman who was going away to the very train i had been asked to leave on he was a guest next door, and I carried the note in to him. Did you do this openly? No, I'm afraid not. I slipped out by the side door, in as careful a way as I could. Did this attempt at secrecy succeed? Were you able to go and come without meeting anyone? No. Adelaide was at the head of the stairs when I came back, standing there, very stiff and quiet did she speak to you no she just looked at me but it wasn't a common look i shall never forget it and what did you do then i went to my room miss cumberland 
Did you see anybody else when you came in at this time? Yes, our maid Helen. She was just laying down a bunch of keys on the table in the lower hall. I stopped and looked at the keys. I had recognized them as the ones I had seen in Mr. Renelay's hands many times. He had gone, yet there were his keys. One of them unlocked the clubhouse. I noticed it among the others, but I didn't touch it then. Helen was still in the hall, and I ran straight upstairs, where I met my sister, as I have just told you. Miss Cumberland, continue the story. What did you do after re-entering your room? I don't know what I did first. I was very excited, elated one minute, deeply wretched and very frightened the next. I must have sat down, for I was shaking very much, and felt a little sick. The sight of that key had brought up pictures of the clubhouse, and I thought and thought how quiet it was, and how far away, and how cold it was too, and how secret. I would go there for what I had to, there, and then I saw in my fancy one of its rooms, with the moon in it, and—but I soon shut my eyes to that. I heard Arthur moving about his room, and this made me start up and go out into the hall again. During all this Mr. Fox had sat by, understanding his right to object to the witness's mixed statements of fact and of feeling, and quite confident that his objections would be sustained. But he had determined long since that he would not interrupt the witness in her relation. The air of patience, he assumed, was sufficiently indicative of his displeasure, and he confined himself to this. Mr. Moffat understood, and testified his appreciation by a slight bow. Carmel, who saw nothing, resumed her story. Arthur's room is near, and Adelaide's far off, but I went to Adelaide's first. Her door was shut, and when I went to open it I found it locked. Calling her name, I said that I was tired and would be glad to say good night. She did not answer at once. When she did, her voice was strange, though what she said was very simple. I was to please myself, she was going to retire too. And then she tried to say good night, but she only half said it, like one who is choked with tears or some other dreadful emotion. I cannot tell you how this made me feel, but you don't care for that. You want to know what I did, what Adelaide did. I will tell you, but I cannot hurry. Every act of the evening was so crowded with purpose, all meant so much. I can see the end, but the steps leading to it are not so clear. Take your time, Miss Cumberland. We have no wish to hurry you. I can go on now. The next thing I did was to knock on Arthur's door. I heard him getting ready to go out, and I wanted to speak to him before he went. When he heard me, he opened the door and let me in. He began at once on his grievances, but I could not listen to them. I wanted him to harness the grey mare for me and leave it standing in the stable. I explained the request by saying that it was necessary for me to see a certain friend of mine immediately, and that no one would notice me in the cutter under the bearskins. He didn't approve, but I persuaded him. I even persuaded him to wait till Zadok was gone, so that Adelaide would know nothing about it. He looked glum, but he promised. He was going away when I heard Adelaide's steps in the adjoining room. 
This frightened me. The partition is very thin between those two rooms, and I was afraid she had heard me ask Arthur for the grey mare and cutter. I could hear her rattling the bottles in the medicine cabinet hanging on this very wall. I looked back at Arthur. I asked him how long Adelaide had been there. He said, for some time. This sent me flying from the room. I would join her and find out if she had heard. But I was too late. As I stepped into the hall I saw her disappearing around the corner leading to her own room. This convinced me that she had heard nothing, and, light of heart once more, I went back to my own room, where I collected such little articles as I needed for the expedition before me. I had hardly done this, when I heard the servants on the walk outside, then Arthur going down. The impulse to see and speak to him again was irresistible. I flew after him and caught him in the lower hall. "'Arthur!' I cried. "'Look at me. Look at me well, and then—kiss me.' And he did kiss me. I am glad when I think of it. Though he did say next minute, "'What is the matter with you? What are you going to do? To meet that villain?' I looked straight into his face. I waited till I saw I had his whole attention. Then I said, as slowly and emphatically as I could, "'If you mean Elwood, no.' I shall never meet him again, except in Adelaide's presence. He will not want to meet me. You may be at ease about that. Tomorrow all will be well, and Adelaide very happy. He shrugged his shoulders and reached for his coat and hat. As he was putting them on, I said, Don't forget to harness up Jenny. Jenny's the grey mare. And leave off the bells, I urged. I don't want Adelaide to hear me go out. He swung about at this. You and Adelaide are not very good friends, it seems. As good as you and she are, I answered. Then I flung my arms about him. Don't go down straight tonight, I prayed. Stay home for this one night. Stay in the house with Adelaide. Stay till I come home. He stared, and I saw his color change. Then he flung me off, but not rudely. "'Why don't you stay?' he asked. Then he laughed and added, "'I'll go harness the mare.' "'The key's in the kitchen,' I said. "'I'll go get it for you.' I heard Zadok bring it in. He did not answer, and I went for the key. I found two on the nail and I brought them both, but I only handed him one, the key to the stable door. "'Which way are you going?' I asked, as he looked at the key, then back towards the kitchen. "'The short way, of course. "'Then here's the key to the Fulton grounds.' As he took the key, I prayed again, "'Don't do what's in your mind, Arthur. "'Don't drink to-night.' He only laughed, and I said my last word. "'If you do, it will be for the last time. "'You'll never drink again after to-morrow.' He made no answer to this, and I went slowly upstairs. Everything was quiet, quiet as death in the whole house. If Adelaide had heard us, she made no sign. Going to my own room, I waited until I heard Arthur come out of the stable and go away by the door in the rear wall. Then I stole out again. I carried a small bag with me, but no coat or hat. 
Pausing and listening again and again, I crept downstairs and halted at the table under the rack. The keys were still there. Putting them in my bag, I searched the rack for one of my brother's warm coats. But I took none I saw. I remembered an old one which Adelaide had put away in the closet under the stairs. Getting this, I put it on, and finding a hat there, too, I took that also, and when I had pulled it over my forehead and drawn up the collar of the coat, I was quite unrecognizable. I was going out when I remembered there would be no light in the clubhouse. I had put a box of matches in my bag while I was upstairs, but I needed a candle. Slipping back, I took a candlestick and a candle from the dining-room mantel, and finding that the bag would not hold them, thrust them into the pocket of the coat I wore, and quickly left the house. Jenny was in the stable, all harnessed, and hesitating no longer, I got in among the bearskins and drove swiftly away. There was a moment's silence. Carmel had paused, and was sitting with her hand on her heart, looking past judge, past jury, upon the lonely and desolate scene in which she at this moment moved and suffered. An inexpressible fatality had entered into her tones, always rich and resonant with feeling. No one who listened could fail to share the dread by which she was moved. District Attorney Fox fumbled with his papers, and endeavoured to maintain his equanimity, and show an indifference which his stern but fascinated glances at the youthful witness amply belied. He was biding his time, but biding it in decided perturbation of mind. Neither he nor anyone else, unless it were Moffat, could tell whither this tale tended. While she held the straight course which had probably been laid out for her, she failed to object, but he could not prevent the subtle influence of her voice, her manner, and her supreme beauty on the entranced jury. Nevertheless, his pencil was busy. He was still sufficiently master of himself for that. Mr. Moffat, quite aware of the effect which was being produced on every side, but equally careful to make no show of it, put in a commonplace question at this point, possibly to rouse the witness from her own abstraction, possibly to restore the judicial tone of the inquiry. "'How did you leave the stable door?' "'Open. "'Can you tell us what time it was when you started?' "'No, I did not look.' Time meant nothing for me. I drove as fast as I could, straight down the hill and out towards the whispering pines. I had seen Adelaide in her window as I went flying by the house, but not a soul on the road, nor a sign of life near or far. The whistle of a train blew as I stopped in the thicket near the clubhouse door. If it was the express train, you can tell— Never mind the if, said Mr. Moffat. It is enough that you heard the whistle. Go on with what you did. I tied up my horse. Then I went into the house. I had used Mr. Ranelagh's key to open the door and for some reason took it out of the lock when I got in and put the whole bunch back into my satchel. But I did not lock the door. Then I lit my candle and then I went upstairs. Fainter and fainter the words fell and slower and slower heaved the youthful breast under her heavily pressing palm. 
Mr. Moffat made a sign across the courtroom, and I saw Dr. Carpenter get up and move nearer to the witness-stand. But she stood in no need of his help. In an instant her cheek flushed, the eye I watched with such intensity of wonder that apprehension unconsciously left me, rose, glowed, and fixed itself at last, not on the judge, not on the prisoner, not even on that prisoner's counsel, but on me, and as the soft light filled my soul and awoke all, where it had hitherto awakened passion, she quietly said, "'There is a room upstairs in the clubhouse, where I have often been with Adelaide. It has a fireplace in it, and I had seen a box there, half filled with wood the day before. This is the room I went to, and here I built a fire.' When it was quite bright, I took out something I had brought in my satchel, and thrust it into the flame. Then I got up and walked away. I—I I did not feel very strong, and sank on my knees when I got to the couch, and buried my face in my arms. But I felt better when I came back to the fire again, and very brave till I caught a glimpse of my face in the mirror over the mantelpiece. That— that unnerved me, and I think I screamed. Someone screamed, and I think it was I. I know my hands went out, I saw them in the glass. Then they fell straight down at my side, and I looked and looked at myself till I saw all the terror go out of my face. And when it was quite calm again, I stooped down and pulled out the little tongs I had been heating in the fire, and laid them quick, quick before I could be sorry again right across my cheek, and then— Uproar in the court. If she had screamed when she said she did, so someone cried out loudly now. I think that pitiful person was myself. They say I had been standing straight up in my place for the last two minutes. End of chapter 29, part 2